This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. Since the landmark court case Loving v. Virginia in 1967, and Joey Drayton brought home a whole Black man in Sidney Poitier and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, our nation has struggled with interracial relationships. The children who often result from these relationships are often told that they won't fit into either community. And honestly, the struggle is real. It was just 10 years ago when a Cheerios commercial depicting a multiracial child and her parents sparked conversations from the water cooler to national morning television. Now, you cannot turn on a streaming service without seeing multiracial children and their interracial parents. Today, I'm joined by some amazing friends, colleagues, and and fellow folks with multiracial roots for an honest conversation about multiracial roots, Black fruit. Family, I'm honored you chose to get uncomfortable with us today. Welcome. First thing I want to do is take have each one of you take a moment to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your work and where you are in the world. Juliana, do you want to start? I'm from all over. I'm originally from New York, Brooklyn, New York to be exact, but um, also the Seattle area as well. I went to grad school in Oklahoma and now I'm here in Texas. Um, Interpersonally, I'm a spoken word artist that needs to get back to the art. I guess that's me in a nutshell right now. Mm, Like Biggie said, big up to Brooklyn. Right. That's how we do it. Okay. Lanisa, good to see you. Can you tell us, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, your journey, whatever you feel comfortable. Sure. Lanisa Williams, and I am the chief of institutional culture at Austin P. State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, This is going into my fourth year. Actually, July 1st will be my fourth year at Austin P. I have uh, lived in Indiana and Colorado, um, primarily because of jobs. But I grew up in Indiana, um, Southern Indiana, which is a very different experience. Um, And I am very passionate about the work that I do in trying to make this world a better place, trying to make sure that everyone trying as hard as I can to make sure that people feel like they're valued and they belong in any environment that that I'm a part of. I've been doing this work for about 20 years. Um, Some days it's really frustrating because I was hoping that we would be further than we are. Um, But it doesn't mean that I stop the fight. I continue doing what I what I feel is important and what I'm passionate about. I'm currently a Ph.D. candidate at Johnson University, working on um, writing my dissertation at this point. And that's very frustrating. But. I'm excited about being done. <laughs> I'm ready to be done with that work. So um, that's just a little bit about me. Oh, all the positive vibes and prayers to that yeah, r- yes. that writing process. Laron, you want to take a second and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, what is up, people? Adam, it's so good to be back on the podcast with you. I've been working with Adam for, what, a little over a year now. We've been. It feels like a lifetime. But... It feels 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been doing that, you know, good work at the University of Kentucky. I'm 
working in advising right now, I'd say, uh, you know, the interest and perspective coming into this session, which spoiler, if you read the title, you know what, what we're going to be talking about today. But I think, you know, when I started working in higher ed, that's what really birthed this healthy journey of, you know, my, my black identity uh, being being multiracial. Uh, and so I've been doing the work on campus, serving students, supporting students, advising students, worked in Res Life for a little bit uh, in the central Kentucky area. Spent a couple of years up in Miami uh, or up in Ohio at Miami University uh, and then came back to Kentucky a couple of years ago. Um, really, I think my work has been centered uh, similarly to, to kind of what you all both said, you know, we, in higher ed, we're not getting rich here, but we're doing the work because we have the opportunity to pour into others the way others have poured into us, um, somewhere along the way. So that's definitely the motive. That's what keeps me going. Um, those those little stories, uh, that we get with the students and, and, and our clients. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to, to kind of dig in with our topic today. We were just talking off mic about the National Conference for Race and Ethnicity, NCOR, in higher ed, just concluded last week in New Orleans. Some of us are like literally still recovering. Um, it is, if you haven't had a chance for all of our folks listening, if you haven't had a chance to go to a professional development conference that is about pers- as much personal development as it is professional development, Encore is that place. It's like you dump the whole village into one place and everybody's vibe is, I would say, vibing and coalescing. And it just, it feeds your soul and spirit um, in many ways, it's exhausting. And so all of us are recovering. One of the sessions that I did at Encore was it was two hours unpacking multiracial identity, multiracial blackness, multiracialness, and the journey, the trauma, the discovery of that. The question, Juliana, that I have for you, and, and we'll give it to all of y'all, is what drew you to that session? And what was the most impactful part? What made you, among all the amazing sessions at Encore, say, okay, I'm going to go explore this one. And what about the session was a good takeaway for you? I think, honestly, what drew me to it was the the, the word multiracial. Um, I shared when, when during that session that I went to, um, it was the first space I walked in where I didn't feel like I was going to have to explain myself. Um, I am somebody who holds dual minority status. Um, my mother is an immigrant. Um, my dad is black and, you know, Afro-Latin. So having just my mixture, it's always like, I'm, oh, don't worry, I am black or don't worry, I am Latin. And when you call that dual minority status, I felt like I was going to walk into that room and be able just to exist without prior to the sessions I went to. I felt there was, I'm not going to lie, there was a little bit of anxiety going in. Are they going to see me as how I know how I feel? And so that's what drew me to it is I wanted to see other people's experiences, not only working in higher ed within that, but personally. Lenisa, how about you? What was the thing that drew you to the space? Because the part that is always the most, I did that session last year at Encore in Portland. We did it for an hour. 
people were upset that it was only an hour. And so this year when Encore asked me to come back and do that session, I said, we're going to have to go at least two hours to really give people time. And there was a point where we did, we went to breakout groups again, because if y'all haven't been to Encore, the key to doing a good Encore session is giving people time to talk to each other. Right. And there was a point that we were supposed to bring people back from small group again, that I said to Laron, let's just let them go. Cause they y'all were just vibing with each other. It was like the most satisfying feeling when you see people just coalescing where you don't want to bring them back that you just say, y'all just keep talking to each other. Lenisa, what drew you to the session and what were some of your biggest takeaways? You know, I actually uh, downloaded the app on my phone for Encore. And so I checked several workshops knowing I wouldn't be able to attend. So I really went with like the flow of however I felt in the moment where I was to tell me where I was going to go. And so during that time, I actually had two other sessions that I had checked as well. And I just really walking around, I said, you know what? I want to go into this session, not necessarily for me, but I was thinking about students that I deal with all the time. And I said, you know, I know that the demographics of our country is changing. And I know that one day faculty and staff members are going to be looking at a group of students and not know how to identify those students or not be able to look at them physically and say, oh, this student's black or this student's white or this student's Latin. Next, they're not going to be able to tell that in the future. So I really thought about that. And I said, you know, what can I gain from this session that can help me maybe help me heal from some of the things that I've been through, but also to be able to share those with students in the future. So I think that's what kind of drew me to that workshop and made me want to be a part of that. And I think the takeaway from that workshop for me was being in a room. And I know I said this that day of such beautiful people, you know, not just physically, but intellectually, listening to their stories, listening to where they wanted to go, listening to um, the things that they wanted to see happen in the future. And and in a, in a sense, already see the healing happening within the room. I thought that was a beautiful thing. And I thought what you shared with all of us, Adam, is like, hey, let's stay connected. So, of course, when it was time to sign up to be a part of a podcast, I'm like, this is a way to stay connected, to keep people connected to each other and to keep having this conversation throughout the rest of the year. I'm so glad that you agreed to do that and those connections. It was like the family showed up. One of the things uh, that was interesting is we did the same session in Portland and there was a mom there, white mom who has a multiracial son. And um, we spent, Laron and I, post-session, probably an hour with her, exchanged information. Her son was really going through it. He was struggling with being a Black man. Um, his mom was really pushing him to embrace, look, you're a whole Black man, bro. And he was really struggling with, no, I'm half white. Well, not to the world. You're a whole Black man. And he was really struggling. And I remember as we were setting up for the session, about two or three minutes before we got started, the mom walked in again in New Orleans. And I said, there's my friend. And she immediately started crying. Like, you remember me? Oh, I remember the whole story. Because 
your story is our story. And that was the really cool part is that we all had our own unique stories in that room, but we all shared something. And it was like a special place at Encore just for us multiracial folks that we could say, no, I get when you say white mom energy, I totally get what you're talking about, right? Um, that kind of understanding is different. Laron, you helped last year, you attended. This year, you helped facilitate, did an amazing job. Talk about what drew you to the session, but even more, what were some of the things that inspired you? Uh, I think uh, Juliana explained it well, is when you see the session title, it's like, you know what, I, I feel like, not that I don't belong here at Encore, I feel like at this session, I really am going to to belong. I was actually in the the small group with uh, with that with that mom uh, last year, and I remember like, man, we got deep. And and <laughs> Adam, when you were trying to bring us back, we were like, nah, bro, we're not coming back. We need more time. So that's why we had to have more time at the second session. But I think you know what is what was powerful to see in there is really how everybody's like you said has a unique story, but we all get it. I think we all continually battle with being a hundred percent ourselves. You said it in the session, you're not 50% of nothing. You're a hundred percent you. And I think all of us multiracial people have continual struggles with that, even in spaces. I've told the, you know, the story not to call anybody out, but last year at Encore, it was after that session, you know, had an experience where there was a comment that was made that kind of belittled the fact of, you know, they kind of questions me of like, oh yeah, in the space, I have to remember I am biracial. I have a black dad and a white mom. Even when we are fully accepted, we still struggle with maybe some of those microaggressions that are unintentional, that are not meant to, you know, being, I've got a, I've got a guy that I play basketball with who, you know, every time he sees me, he calls me, what up, light skin? <laughs> and, you know, it's, he means it all in love, but he doesn't know what I've been through in my life and how that is tr triggering to an extent. But we just have to, you know, focus on the love part and know the history of, of where that, that came from. So when I look at this year coming back and wanting to help you facilitate is because, man, it's so important to give life to 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 people who identify that way and, and are still struggling. We're all grown adults. Right. But we are still growing and we need that it's like you get up in that space you knew you wanted it but then you didn't know how good it was going to feel when you started talking uh, to your people and how they just got it and how you didn't expect to get emotional but all of a sudden you get emotional talking about you know all of these different things and your experiences and so i think this scene uh like uh, lanisa said the beautiful people and inside and out is what drew me and and hey we gotta we gotta keep this running uh next year what encores in hawaii I, I think we need to do this session again next year <laughs> right <laughs> that's right that's right we, we're gonna do a pre-conference so we need to even be in hawaii early um you know juliana you were talking about your afro-latino roots right and having a black dad and Latina mom. And one of the things that we were talking about in the session, and I always laugh about my 23 and me, right? You know, because my 23, yo, that 23 and me came back and I'm 55% European, but I don't get to have the light skin and I got no privilege of being 55% European, right? Um, but the 
interesting thing that we talked about in kind of my background in theology starts in this place that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. He was 100% of both. He wasn't half and half. That is a challenging experience for us that are multiracial because you are 100% a Latina and 100% a Black woman. But your definition and what I journeyed through, Juliana, was as a college student was that my definition of how I saw myself mattered less when I got out into the real big world than how other people saw me. Talk a little bit about your journey of being 100% yourself in both sides and that experience of what people seeing back at you um, sometimes matters more than what you see in your own heart. You know, I think that's a deep question because I didn't realize I had that problem. So I went to college and when I went to college, um, I realized really quickly I couldn't be both. And that was, that was weird for me because everybody in my family's mixed. My mom is, you know, Spanish, Italian, you know, but she grew up in Germany. So she speaks German. So I speak German. So I had this weird dynamic. And I remember coming to school, everyone in my family's mixed, you know, everybody. And so when I went to school and I remember going to things that, you know, like black studio, all the things, and I was like, what are you? I remember being in a room and somebody walked out and I laughed when he said the lights can comment because within the first two weeks of school, I became white skinned. And that's what I was known as. I think from my experience, and again, what you said, can you repeat the question? Sorry, I'm about to ramble. How has your definition of yourself changed and how has it mattered? I don't want to say more because how we see ourselves is obviously more important, but the reality is our trauma and survival has to do with much like your family. My family in the eighties was a whole bunch of multiracial diverse people. And then you got into the world and you become something different, right? How did that journey happen for you? And how did that reflection of being 100% yourself, how was that defined? I think at first I struggled. I felt like I had to break myself in half to be able to coexist in whatever world I was in. And I think now how it, it made me just solidify as much as I struggled, because I found like, you know, I had mixed friends. And my friends who were half white, they were more accepted by the Black community than me. I was labeled, you know, the Puerto Rican one or whatnot. And so I think for me, it just solidified now in this present moment that I can be both, but I really struggled. I think there was a lot of times I tried to either break myself in half or ignore the other part. And that was hard. Um, and so it was more so what I felt like what people projected on me is how, how I was going to be. And for that, there was at one point where I was, I'm going to hyperfixate on being a black woman. And I hyperfixated on being black from everything from my hair to everything else. My name is Juliana. I started going by Nicole, which is my other first name. And, you know, for my whole undergrad career, there was this, this turmoil I just wanted to fit in. You know, I remember um, I am a part of a sorority. And I remember, you know, even when I, you know, joined, I was like, dang, I'm going to be the one they pointed out because I'm the light skin one on the line, right? And so I remember I did everything just to be black. And so I never, if people would ask me what I was, I was black. And so when I got to grad school, um, I joined, I became the president of uh, BGSA. I remember now I'm going back to saying my name with my Spanish, how my mom called me down the stairs when I was in trouble. And I didn't care how people saw me. And I said that, but that was a lie. And I think 
in every space, I was looking at how people saw me and how can I make them understand. So I think how people saw me formed how I was going to present at that time. Mm, No, I completely get it. I mean, I went off to college at Drake University and the first day of football practice, trucks driving by yelling, run, N-words, run. I mean, I had heard the N-word maybe once from somebody outside of my mother in my life, um, in my childhood, and I was hearing it every day. And the reality was that I was seeing was it mattered more what people saw. It wasn't like growing up, I wasn't me, but I wasn't Black Adam first. I was Adam who happened to be Black. And then having to walk through what we talk about almost like with uh, Leron with our kids, right? That your son, my kids, they, they get to slowly add the weight to the bar of the trauma and stress of the racial realities of America because they got us, right? When you don't have that, it's like all of a sudden you're trying to bench 300 pounds and you, you get crushed under the weight of those realities. And people that aren't multiracial, when I share that with them, they'll say, what, you, you didn't know you was Black? Yeah, I knew I was Black. I just didn't know it mattered like that. And so then my response was really similar to yours. First, pissed off, pissed off at the whole damn world. And then second off, I read everything and I became blackity, black, 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 right? Read every speech, every book, just did everything, right? To immerse myself in, if you're going to say this is who I am, I'm going to take the strongest, best, most active parts of what that looks like. Lenisa, talk a little bit about your personal journey, because you shared some really good things from a from a very positive lens of your childhood. You shared that with us in New Orleans. Talk about that journey with you and how you have grown in your definition of yourself. Sure. So if I shared with you all that, you know, my parents started dating when they were in high school in the 60s. And so, that, of course, there were some challenges to that in the 60s, right, in a in Indiana in the state where I think it wasn't until 1969 you could even get married, right? Interracial have interracial marriages until 1969. So they they started dating in the in the mid 60s and I know that, you know, I've heard this story over and over again about how my mother who's African American, my father who's white had another couple um where it was a, a black man and a white woman that were dating. And so the black guy would go pick up my mom And my dad would go pick up the white woman and then they'd go on dates and actually switch because that was just what they had to do in order to go out on dates. And so what I shared with you all is that what I had, what I saw from my parents was a genuine love because there was so much that could have made them not want to be together. And they still decided that they were going to be together and have, you know, three children. The trauma, I think, actually occurred after after having the, I mean, there were, there were issues, right? But I think that love was so sincere and so genuine that they really didn't care about the world until they had children. And so when they had us, then there were all these other ugly things that would happen. You know, my mom was a dark skinned woman. So people would walk up to her frequently and say, well, whose house are you cleaning? Whose kids are you babysitting? Because my siblings and I were were light skinned. So there's no way we could possibly be her kids. I remember her telling a story when, when I was born, and that was back in the day when your baby's born and they put them in the glass, you know, the glass, the glass behind the glass where you, they weren't in your room. And my mom said, 
that she was standing there looking at me and women were walking up to her and saying, I'm so sorry you lost your baby. They just assumed because there was not a dark skinned baby behind that glass that could be her baby. And she's like, what are you talking about? That's my baby right there. You know, so those kind of things, I think having a strong um, parental, having strong parental support from my parents and my parents always saying how much they loved us, particularly, and I, and I want to talk about this later too, particularly my father, you know, white man, it was really like, so much support and love, wanting to always affirm how much he, how how wonderful we were, how much he loved us, and being very supportive of us. My mom is a little different from my mom, but I think the definition the definition of being multiracial changed for me when I first heard the N word from my white grandmother, and so. I think I was like six and I heard that word and I was like, what does that word mean? Because I never heard that word from my parents before and have to have my mom explain what that hateful word meant. And the fact that it came from my grandmother's mouth was just devastating to me. I was like, why would someone who is related to me use a word like that? So I started to realize, you know, early on that even though you have family members who you you feel like for all intents and purposes should love you and care for you that they still saw you very differently you know and so that was hard for me to get through that period of my life and then um as i grew college was was transformational for me too and i i'm like the rest of you i wanted to learn everything there was to learn about being black and then one of the things that i consciously um, decided to do when I was in college, and I still do it to this day, is I don't let people use the word mixed around me. I said, I don't like that word. because I And I say to people, I said, the only thing mixed is cake, paint, and drinks. And Because I, I don't feel like people are mixed. I feel like we are we are made up of people that love us, and we're, we're 100% who we are. So we're not mixed with anything. And mixed has all these different convocations to me about, you know, being mixed or not being right or being a mutt or being. So I just don't like the word myself personally. I know other people still use the word. So I think um, as I've grown and I've had children and I've had to and and with my children, um, allow them to be whoever they wanted to be and identify any way that they wanted to identify. I think um, that has transformed me into a person that maybe early on. Not not early on necessarily with my parental support, but early on felt like I kind of was a victim, right? That all these terrible things were happening to me and I didn't understand why because of who I was to being a person saying, no, this is who I am. I'm going to accept who I am 100 percent. And I'm and you are, too. <laughs> and if you don't, then I'm not going to waste my time being around you. So I just stopped wasting my time being around people that are not accepting of me, that don't understand. And I still hear microaggressions from people. And, and I and now I'm at a point in my life where I just call you out. Well, what did you mean by that? Why did you say that? You know, and do you realize that's offensive when you say that to people who may be biracial or multiracial? So I don't have I, I can't say I would have did that at 20. But now at my age, I'm going to call you out and ask you why you say that and why you do those kind of things. So I think I have been able to transform and being 100% authentically who I am and be okay with that. Mm. And that, I mean, that is a journey we all want to have, right? Where we can be 100% us unabashedly, um, unapologetically us, right? Um, I think one of the things that you brought up that's so good, and Ron, I want to get this to, with you, is this whole idea that people who aren't my, multiracial, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was talking about my family, and I love my family, but 
he just seems to think because you have a white mom, your white mom can't be a racist. Well, that's not true. I mean, just because you had sex with somebody who's black or Latino or Asian or had a bunch of kids by them doesn't absolve you from racism. In fact, it makes it easier to say, well, this is not only my black friend, this is my black son. This is I can't be a racist because I have. And it's this idea that because you have cousin Laron or brother Laron or son Laron or brother Adam or friend Adam, it's that black friend, right? That absolves us from all the things. Um, we talked a little bit about the Cheerios commercial that came out in 2013 and all of the outrage. I was going back on YouTube, just looking at um, local TV news and the kind of things people were saying about the daughter and about the family. And then you had the other side, the liberals, who were talking about, oh, this is so great, so great. This is a picture of what America looks like. And now you can't turn on the TV and turn on streaming services without seeing this. And what uh, scholars are saying, because that even though our country is becoming more and more multiracial, the reality is the people who are selling stuff are selling stuff for specific reasons. And the reality is they know that psychologically people feel good that they don't feel bad seeing the multiracial family. And that makes them go buy margarine or whatever it is, because the reality is the depiction is not reality, right? Laurent, talk a little bit about your journey, because your journey is, is really unique and some of the challenges you faced being the Black friend, but how also your evolution as a Black man happened, because you may not have had those Black men around you consistently to help evolve that with you. Talk a little bit about your experiences, especially the ones I'm thinking at EKU. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think when I was younger and and I've got I've got nothing. I had a I had a wonderful white mom. I got nothing but love. And, you know, when I talk about my experience when I was younger, I think in a lot of people, we went through a phase as America where we thought being colorblind was was being anti-racist. And what we didn't understand and what a lot of people I think came from pure intentions of it's not, you know, you're not black or white, you're Laron. And and it's about how you act and, and and how you treat people and love. And I think that I think there's a lot of value and validity to focus on being loved and focusing on that. But also what it did is I went through middle school, high school, not able to process the racism that I experienced. And then I got to to my undergrad, a small faith-based liberal arts institution in um, you know, the Lexington area in Kentucky. And again, there wasn't a whole lot of people of color on campus. Uh, and so I experienced some of the same racism from both the white and black communities, both in where I grew up and then at, at Georgetown College, where I did my undergrad. It wasn't until I got at EKU and one of the brothers working in, in Res Life, because that's what I, where I was working, he you know came up to me. He said, hey, I have this program called Brothers Reaching Out. It's where all you know black uh, faculty and staff, we get together on a, a monthly basis and do breakfast. You should be there. And it kind of took me and I was like, are you like, I, was, I didn't say this, but I was kind of thinking like, are you sure you want me there? Because, you know, 
my whole life I've, I've been painted as like, ah, oh, we well, only halfway count or, oh, you know, you're not, you're not real black. You know, when I was growing up, some of my white friends and, you know, I was, I was safe to them because they're like, oh, well, Ron, you're, you're black, but you're not like, you know, really black. Um, and then in, in the black community is like, you know, Hey, I don't know how much I'm going to let you get away with. You got a white mama. So like, uh, and, and it just that kind of growing up with that conflict of identity that that's tough. And it, it, it made me suppress racial identity because I was angry in the sense of like, why does everybody care so much about race? Like I'm LeBron, like, don't, don't try to put me in any kind of a box, but it was in an unhealthy way. Right. Like I, unfortunately, and this is why it's so interesting and in, in how multiracial uh, people are even more complex than people even know. Like Juliana, you said being a dual minority, uh, you know, race uh, and that like, and then we have, I was in this other session that was on multiracial and it was not multiracial people, but it was like uh, Latin folks that were white passing and like their, their own struggle uh, and, and how they deal with it. So like the, the complexities that, that we run into, we have to be there to kind of support each other and to, to, to say like, Hey, okay, this is what going down. You get to choose you know, being being black is very personal to you. Uh, something that was else was in that session is thinking about, we always think, or at least I do think about race from a negative connotation. When I think back to my earliest memories, it's about racism and how it negatively impacted. I don't think much about like how I was positively impacted by my race and my culture. And so the session challenged me to think about like, well, what are the experiences that were both internally and externally Im implied from a positive standpoint. Uh, and so when I got to EKU and, and from then on, uh, it was really, I had these real black men embrace me and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I think from, from that point on, I started to almost have permission <laughs> from the black community to embrace who I was as a black man. Uh, and, and even though my journey is different, you know, than, than two parents, uh, who, or, you know, someone who had two black parents, I was still, like you say, Adam, a whole black man. And, you know, it's been, it's been a journey. And when you and I first met, like, like there's been some conversations that we had that I still wrestle with it and struggle with it. Uh, but it's so important. And I think that that's what, what I will do differently with my son. It's like, Hey, you need to learn about like the, it's great to be black. It's great to be, you know, who you are in these different races. You just got to embrace it and, and look, acknowledge the negative lens that, that America is going to show you, but then embrace the positive lens as well. That's right. Well, and I think, Lenisa, what, what you were saying about the positivity, those pieces, right? I was, I was sitting at Grant Park um, in 2008, the night that Senator Obama won the presidential nomination in Chicago. Um, and the scene was crazy, right? If you see it, uh, if you saw it on TV or you were there, it was crazy. It was warm for November. So it's on the lake. I mean, it's on Lake Michigan. So it's, it's supposed to be freezing in Chicago. The weather, it had to be like high 50s. It's beautiful. The people were, you know, diverse, this crazy mix of people. Um, the vibe was great. But the reality was, and I was working in politics in Illinois at the time, we knew what the data was saying, 
but we also know what the Bradley effect is. Like what reality is Bradley effect, I forget, was running for office in California and Bradley was a black guy. And the reality was they the poll said he was going to win by 12, 15 points. But when white folks get in the booth, they have a hard time voting for somebody black. Right. And so all of us knew what the polls were saying with Barack versus McCain. And we knew he was up by 10, 12 points. We're like there's no way they're going to let a brother win this thing. Right. And younger people believed. But us in our 30s, 40s at the time, we're like, eh, they ain't going to give us nothing. It's not going to work. There's no way the guy, the good guy with the good family who's married to a real sister from the South Side is going to win this thing. And I remember when the announcement came on, doo, 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 and Wolf Blitzer says, we can predict that Barack Obama is going to be the next president of the United States. I still get goosebumps. I went to both inaugurations that night outside of my marriage and my grandkids and my kids, the greatest night of my life. I started sobbing. You know, when you get a whooping and you'd cry so much that you couldn't catch your breath, <laughs> that cry, I was crying like that as a whole grown ass man, y'all. I mean, just sobbing like that. It wasn't about Barack. It was about all the other brothers. Right. And I'm sobbing. My mom calls me and I can barely talk. And my daughters call me and I can barely talk. And I'm looking around and the, the black women and other women of color are jumping around and they're crying too, but they're not crying in the same way. Then before I know it, there's a group of other black men and we're all hugging each other, crying the same way, like that same just guttural like let the weight off cry, right? And then all of a sudden these young white guys jump on us and say, we love y'all's energy. But it was that night that helped me realize that opportunities were real, where the brother could win, the brother who was raised by his immigrant grandmother, like I was, right? The brother who was a good guy and did all the right things could win. And it was really the hope that we could have. And despite 45 and the crazy we're in now, I still wouldn't trade that day. And Laron, you're in my conversations. I still remember one of our first where you said, you know, talk to me about being biracial and all of this. I said, you're by nothing. You a straight black man. Now, blackness is how you choose to define it. I don't care who your mom and daddy are, but you got a black wife and you got a black son, more importantly. So, my job as an elder is to prop you up as a black man, period. And how you choose to define your blackness is 100% up to you. But I got that at the time, five-year-old boy, that if I'm going to support Laron, I need to support my man, Nehemiah. So more than anything, that's our priority. Lenisa, you talked a little bit about your dad in his role, because you know it's one thing to be in a interracial, a product of an interracial relationship, interracial marriage um, in our generation, but to have it be straight loving v. Virginia, white man and black woman is pretty unique. Talk a little bit about how your dad helped define who you are as not only a multiracial black woman, but who you are as a human being, the love that he gave. You know, I, so I have two very unique parents and I make jokes about this all the time. Like my dad grew up in the 60s and loved the temptations and loved, you know, black music and loved everything about black culture. Whereas my mom grew up very country, was listening to, you know, country music, loved bluegrass. 
So I had a very different, and she was very eccentric. So I had a very different upbringing, right? So I think um, our father's love for us and his showing support, because I think you get that you you get that support from your father where you feel safe, right? And so my dad, as a white man, because the white man has privileges, provided this sense of children that really, I think, kind of defined who we were and helped us to feel more secure in being biracial kids. And I think, honestly, I felt like it would have been different had my father been a, a black man and my mom a white woman. I don't know that I would have felt that same type of security. And again, recognizing that he had privileges that black men don't have necessarily all the time. And so I think that really made a difference. But at the same time, I think my dad was very much immersed in the culture, the black culture, which helped us to understand and to and to be happy with being black children and, and being OK with being black. And he was perfectly OK with that. You know, I remember I, I'm dating myself. There was a lady that my dad was in love with. Her name was Jane Kennedy. She was an actress. He used to tell me all the time, oh, my goodness, she's beautiful, just like you all the time. So anytime he saw any beautiful black woman, he'd all say, you're just as beautiful as that person. And so I grew up thinking that I was this beautiful black woman and that was OK. And he did the same thing with my brother. You know, he would say, you're handsome, just like whoever, you know. And so my brother felt that same kind of confidence. And I think, again, it's having a parent who has who's white, who recognize he has privileges because he is white and providing that stability and that safety for you that you feel like you should get from your father. And I know I had mentioned to you, I think, because we talk so much about white mothers. And I think, you know, I had a conversation with someone at your session, actually, talking about how white mothers sometimes provide, you know, you said mama bear. So they provide this, this comfort as a mama bear, right? But may not necessarily provide the ability for you to help, help, help you with your identity. And so I so I was trying to understand and wrap my mind around that. And so I thought about well, what do black mothers provide. So then, you know, as I was talking to the, the lady that was with me in my group, she said, well, you know, black mothers don't always provide that mama bear kind of like vibe because they're so worried about providing you what you need to survive. And so that fluffy, loving kind of thing that you sometimes feel from white moms, you don't get from black moms because black moms are more concerned about I need my kid to survive. I need my kid to understand what they need to do in this world because this world is not the greatest place. And I think, you know, and that's not, not to say all white mothers operate this way or all black mothers operate this way. But in my experience, that, that is what I've seen. I've seen black mothers are really trying to make sure their kids survive. And, and white mothers want to provide all that love and care, but may not necessarily give a biracial or multiracial person everything they need to survive in this world with all the things that go on in the world. I don't know. I don't have any proof of that. That's some research somebody else can do, but I just really thought about that. And that was a good conversation with that person that was with me in my group. When it's an interesting reflection, because the reality is, you know, Black women have been carrying a nation since 1619 and carry it today. And so when you're so busy carrying all the things, um, you're just you're just trying to carry you know, that's who led us over bridges. That's who ensured that we have the rights. That's ensure, who ensured that we defended women's rights. And we've, we continue to defend all of the things in this country. And so it's kind of hard to mama bear when you're fighting for the world. Um, I think 
one of the really important things that that you are bringing up is this idea of what what I would call white mom energy. And you said the same thing about your dad, white dad energy. You know, my mom was adamant. You will not discriminate. I mean, in Sunday school, in jobs and anything, you are not going to discriminate against my son. But what I would have hoped is that she would use that same privilege for some of the other kids, right? Make some of that same space, keep that same energy going for the black kid who has a black dad and a white mom, and they may be too busy holding up the world and fighting the patriarchy and colonialism and anti-blackness that they don't have the privilege to walk into school and demand that their kid is seen and valued and supported. Um, That's what I mean by that white mom energy. And it sounds like your dad used some of that privilege to make space for not just his kids, but other people's children, which is critical. Juliana, you talked a lot about, you know, these identities and these struggles and your Latin identity and your black identity. Talk a little bit about, you know, you talked about your journey. Are there people that were in your life growing up, sometimes even family members that you maybe have to love from a distance because you've chosen to see yourself and embrace who you are the way you are. And some of that has helped you realize who they are, even though you may love them, you got to keep them a little bit further away from you. Talk a little bit about those two dueling minority statuses and how sometimes they don't play well together. And sometimes you've maybe maybe had to make some hard choices for your own mental, emotional, physical safety. Yeah. um, There are a lot of people I feel like I've had to love from a distance. The first one is my grandmother. Um, I, she would remind me all the time that because I'm so out of, I guess my whole family's biracial for the most part. Um, or multiracial. And so I became her favorite because I was the Latin passing one. Um, I was her honey baby. I have a complexion, you know, I could pass. And so when I did anything black, she would quickly remind me, you're not one of them. And I didn't know what one of them meant. Um, but I think a lot of it was a lot of my Latin family. I actually don't have a good relationship with a lot of some of my Latin family, um, specifically the ones who are and they say more so European and my Spanish family is the same um, because of that. And, you know, it was very conflicting because I was always reminded of what I looked like. And that made me like somewhat better kind of like tokenism. So I had to keep that distance because anything I did black was kind of shunned. Um, and then on the same token, I had to do that within like my black family as well, because I became to. I know I said I became well aware of it in college when I, as you guys were talking, made me think of a memory when I was younger. I was always called the half breed. And, or my aunt would be like, here, we're going to go doing that yellow shit again. And I hated my skin. And my first memory after that is I remember when I was called a half breed by my aunt too, is I went home and I don't know if y'all remember like the Noxima lotion. I could, I have this picture of me in childhood and I asked my mom what's going on. I coated myself in my grandmother's Noxima lotion and I sat outside for hours. And when my mom came home, she was like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't want to be a half-breed anymore. And so for me growing up, there were times where I had to distance myself from family members because there was always a conflicting on the other side. And so now in adulthood, um, I have to keep my grandmother at a distance because the older she becomes, the more racist she becomes. Um, And the more, I mean... As you said, I get to define my blackness. 
even though I am biracial, I know I primarily operate in my blackness. And so that means I can't operate around her. And since I can't operate around her, I won't be around her. Um, and in terms of, you know, my dad's side, my dad was very accepting. He would always tell me the difference between me and my mama, him and my mama are sugar cane and cotton, the only difference. And so, um, but there's people on his side where, you know, I become that token. I become that, you know, kind of like, you don't get it. And in my head, I'm like, I do get it. I make better collard greens than you. What are you talking about? You know, because that matters. But it, it was just one of those things. So I've had to keep a lot of family kind of at bay. And um, I do have children. I am an adoptive parent. Um, one of my daughters is biracial. One of them is Creole. One of them is Ethiopian. And so for them, I've had to even keep them separate from different family members because, you know, they are light skin. The tokenism they get from that as well. And so I think along the way, I've had to keep my grandmother, a lot of aunts, just kind of at a distance because when I would be around them, I started to hate myself or I started to dissect myself to fit what they needed. Like I said, I'm going to be Black and be Black, I'm going to be So what do you want? And, you know, I've had to kind of separate that. Um, and I think sometimes I'm going to be honest, I still struggle with that because, um, when I came to Texas A&M, it's probably the most Latin I've ever felt in my life, not by choice. They saw my name. Um, I remember coming here and there's a professor who I, or a faculty member who I love that every time this is Juliana, she's Latin, bruh, they see me, they hear my name. I'm sure they're assuming you don't have to do an announcement, but then I got offended because you're denying my blackness. And everything in my office, if you can see my office, is, you know, black decorated. And there was just a couple of things here that I had to keep people out of bay. I had the higher person here who, they're like, well, we don't have a black person in the counseling center. And I was like, sitting right there in the room, like, hold up. Do you not see everything? And not that you have to be, you know, a black person to be in my sorority or these things. But I'm like, where do you not see my blackness? And, and they changed it. Well, you know, who looks more black? How do I not look like black? When you mentioned the light skin statement, that statement came from my best friend who was full black and just as white as me. And so, you know, I feel like there's times within my career, I've had to keep people at bay. But before I keep them at bay, I always educate them first of the statements that they're saying. Yeah. Well, because there's Afro-Latinos are a whole real thing. You know, if you've ever been to the Dominican Republic, I mean, you know, the slave ships stopped in certain places first <laughs> before it, right? And so those things are all of our realities. And I think as you're talking, um, when you said something about your grandmother, I don't know if she gets my my guess, you know, because some of my family, I don't think they get more racist when they get older. I think they become more unabashed. They just don't give a dang or the filter goes away. So it was always there. Now I just don't care. Or I'm not, I don't have as much of my faculties to, to suppress my racist ideas. So I just say them, right? Um, one of the things uh, that I talked about at the session was how um, my sister, who is about all three of y'all's complexion. So I would say my sister got the caramel. She has brown hair, but she has hair that was more tight and kinky. And my hair was more AC Slater from Saved by the Bell. That's kind of it reference. I have no hair now, but it used to be like that. And um, for school pictures, my mom took my sister to the beauty shop. 
And she didn't take her to the white beauty shop. She took, because white mom energy, if you're going to have some brown kids, sit down with some black women and learn about hair, right? Just take some time to learn from, learn about skin, learn about lotion, learn about all the things that you have to do to care for black people, which is different than white people. White people don't, white people wash their hair every day, right? Not a big deal can't do that when you're black, right? And so my mom took my sister to get her hair straightened and all this stuff at the uh, at the beauty shop. And when my sister came out, I don't remember the story, but my sister was sitting, me and uh, my sister and her wife, and they were telling the story about how my mom was so upset about, quote unquote, all that grease in my sister's hair. And she brought my sister back. Now, this is white mom energy. Because they would, how are you going to walk back? Took my sister back into the beauty shop and made the women there wash that grease out of her hair. Could you imagine what the black women were thinking? Not about my mom. That is what is. What they thinking about my sister? Poor baby. Because her hair is still her hair, right? And to have the gall to think, I mean, the one thing I know as a black man there are black women who have forgotten more in five seconds about hair than I know. Um, there was a brother at school who dyed his hair one day uh, at the front desk of our of our one of our facilities, one of our student assistants. And I said, did, did you ask any black women before you dyed your hair? Why would I need to do that? Three days later, his hair was falling out. I said, that's not, you might want to ask the sisters first. But one of the things, as Juliana was talking, I was thinking about is the, some of these conversations that my mom and I have, because you have this whole Black son who does social justice work and has had his whole life and who presents as basically a normal, dark, normal, well, I don't even know. People would see me and not think I'm biracial, right? Or multiracial. And so I've had this journey that my mom gets to see. And one day I told her, if you say things like that, I can't trust you with my heart. I can't trust you with my heart. And because you're my mom, anybody else says crazy stuff to me, my heart isn't involved. But when my mom says stuff about Kaepernick or says things that are like that, you're my whole mother. I got to be able to come to you like this. And when you do that, and so helping educate her has been one of the biggest gifts of my life. It's been hard. Laron, I'm going to kind of let you close us out. And I wanted you to quickly talk about how, because you talked about this journey and how in, you and I talked at one point about how you thought growing up that the Black community didn't accept you back in your small town. I think the Black community maybe didn't accept you know, in my, imagine what the beauty parlor was saying about my mom. They wouldn't have accepted me either because they would have been like, oh, that's the dude whose mom cussed out the ladies at the beauty shop, right? But then you go off into the world and the black community that doesn't know you and doesn't know your familiar things accept you. So talk a little bit about if how you feel embracing your definition, your definition of blackness. And some people see that are multiracial, that that denies their white family, that denies who their mother is or their dad is or the people they love. Talk about how you've wrestled with that and, and how you feel about that. Yeah, it's, it, it's a really hard question to address um, because 
it's confusing, right? I, I think that for, for those of us who uh, have a white parent, um, I, there's no point in time where I would have say or say that I claimed my whiteness. Like to me, that doesn't, you can't do that. Not in America. Like I, I can't, I've never been able to say like, well, I'm, I'm claiming this part of my, my white identity. Like that, that, that just doesn't exist because I'm constantly reminded of the world around me. And this is, you know, mostly growing up, but even still today, constantly reminded that I'm not white. Right. And all of the, the white privilege or these like that doesn't happen for people who, and unless you are white passing, but that's not even, that's not even multiracial. That's just, you know, there's different races that can be white passing. So I think for me, when I look back uh, and, and from this session of like this idea of how have you looked at race through a negative lens and how have you looked at it from a positive lens, when I look back and I just, I think about the culture and, and this was something that I struggled with when people wouldn't accept me, I would always like, and this would be, I would never say this out loud, but I would be like, how black do you need me to be? You know, I, I'm married to a black woman. I love black music. I eat all of these things in my life that represent I'm a black man. What else do I have to do for you to fully accept me? Uh, and I think that that was something that, that I struggled with. And then, you know, I'll meet people and there's sometimes people that are like, eh, you know, you get it some, but you only have, like still to this day, I'll meet some and, you know, having conversations with some of my white family, I think trying to, when I went through this kick, like you all talked about, right? Like if I'm going to be black, I need to know my stuff. I need to be able to to talk to my family. I need to explain to them like what white privilege means and what it is. And, you know, where I'm from, they like what, and especially not growing up, you know, wealthy, like growing up around white people who were poor too. It's like, what, what do you think? They always said like, what do you mean white privilege? I don't see no white privilege, but in trying to explain that it did feel like for some of my white families, like, well, you know, you're half white. And I want to say like, just because I say, no, I'm not half white. doesn't mean that I don't accept that I grew up in some white culture. Right. And I think that that's the hardest piece for me to wrap my head around, like, you know, a good example and it just makes me laugh. I, I look at uh, when I go home to Jamie's family for Thanksgiving, you know, they know how to th they, they be throwing down. And I remember it was a couple of years after we had been married and I come back to my house and we go home and, and there's no gravy. And I'm like, yo, <laughs> how are we making this dinner? We got no gravy. My, my wife, she always laughs that she's like, y'all's dessert table is like two things. Like we got a whole dessert table that's just as long as, you know, I, so I think that just to, I, and I'm rambling a little bit, but I think it's it's difficult. But I think that the love come coming back to that love piece, and I will say that that is a good takeaway. We, out of all of it, we do as humans, we have to remember to love one another, and part of that loving one another is allowing us to have the space to be who we are. I'll end it with there was this quote, like the Andre Lord quote about. You know, we don't, we are not single issue live, or we don't leave, or we're not single issue minded because we don't leave single issue lives or something like that. And I'm like, who better can understand that than us multiracial people? Because we've literally been living that from day one and got that from the jump. So, y'all, thank you so much for not only sharing your stories, but sharing them so vulnerably, sharing your heart, sharing your journey, sharing space with me, because I, 
do sessions at Encore and other conferences. Um, very rarely do I do them and get fed at the same time. Thank you all so much for doing that, for taking the time to share this today. Um, I really appreciate it, family. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.